Conservation has far too long been the doom and gloom discipline that every year you find out how much worse things were than before. Where I think rewilding this other movement called conservation optimism is coming in is to say not only is there a problem, but there's also a solution out there. We don't we don't have to give up, you know, now. It's my job as as an educator, lecturer, to, you know, let my students know that what we're doing has had some success, but ultimately we're not achieving it. What they need to do is go way beyond anything that I can teach them. They need to innovate come up with new ideas, come up with new optimistic futures and communicate those and test them out and, and find those solutions. And, and that's where I'd like to be in the future is, is as a more innovative, more dynamic, more optimistic, more forward-focused conservation sector that's ingrained into every part of our lives. Welcome to Impact It, the podcast series about research for real change. Each episode showcases researchers here at the University of Sussex and considers the impact that their work is having in the world. My name's Will Hood. And I'm Suzanne Fisher-Murray. And today we are featuring Dr. Christopher Sandham, lecturer in biology here at the university, who specialises in rewilding and paleoecology. You're listening to Impacted. From the University of Sussex. A podcast series about research for real change. On your online profile, you mentioned the mighty Sir David Attenborough as having a big influence on uh, the development of your involvement in this field. Describe for me the moment when you started posing big questions about the natural world and and what kind of influence did Big Dave have on you? (laughs) So I guess I'm probably one of those generations that started to grow up more connected to the screen than maybe nature as a whole. I had a nice garden and the garden was lovely, very manicured, lots of places to run around in but not very wild. So saw some of these big wildlife programs that David Attenborough was producing and uh, and got inspired by it. And I always felt from a very young age that biodiversity, biology, the environment's going to be really important, is really important and need to need to get involved with that. And not necessarily to become an academic, it was more to have a positive impact on the world. And then yeah, big questions come along on a regular basis really about how do we restore the world I think it was probably not to my late teens until I realised the rural landscape I lived in was just not natural even you know slightly Now when Chris uses the word natural it may not be the same natural that you think of when you imagine your favourite woodlands or park areas For Chris natural means something nearer to pre-human and is therefore a state that few of us can even imagine let alone draw experience from so how would you define natural space? That's a very big question for <laughs> for someone in my field, uh, and it's one that's discussed a lot. I don't think there's, there's pretty much nowhere now in the world that has that's away from human influence. We influence everything. So then it becomes a degree of influence, a degree of control. So in the South Downs, we basically determine what that landscape looks like by farmers choosing what they want, to, what crops they want to grow, which animals they want to graze. Uh, in a landscape in, you know, at a national park that's still got its bears and big predators, there's that sense of nature's in charge a lot more. It's still, still influenced by people, but nature's got a much bigger role to play in the way processes work, the way these animals in, interact with each other, and that will determine which trees grow where and and where the rivers flow and how much flooding there is. It, it's very much natural-led versus people-led.
Why is biodiversity this golden ticket? You know, what would be the problem of getting rid of all the animals and resources that we don't need and just farming and having a natural world that actually suits our purposes best? I mean, hasn't in a way that been the human project for the last um, several million years? We've been struggling for so long to try and control nature. Um, what, what is the problem with that? Can you tell me which animals we need and which ones we don't? I can't, but can you? I can't. I don't know. Most ecologists I know would suggest that nature's much more complicated than we understand right now. And while we kind of appreciate the benefits that the human uh, society have, have gained through development at the expense of the natural world, the, the worry is that we just push it too far. And if we go over that threshold, while we can do a lot, I don't think we're suggesting that we can control the biological system at a, at a global level. Chris's research is concerned with a timeline that far exceeds the remit of most academic disciplines. And his work is attempting to understand the tremendous amount of change that can happen over hundreds of thousands of years. When you're studying the past, what I think you learn quite quickly is that things change and things change a lot um, you know, over time. It's, it's a very dynamic, variable system that we live in, you know, and it goes back a, a really long period of time. Things that, or the things that I've been studying partly is looking at what drove the megafauna extinct. Over the last two million years, we've gone through these kind of warm, cold fluctuations, 100,000 years of ice age, 10,000, 30,000 years of, of warm periods. The big difference in the last ice age was humans walked out of Africa and colonised the world. I mean, let's face it, we're not that impressive compared to a tiger or a lion. Technologically, we're, we're hugely impressive. Our ability to hunt collaboratively was kind of a game changer. You know, instead of having this kind of evolution arms race, we kind of went into a technological arms race that we were just far more capable of than most other species. That human arrival was too much for those animals to bear, these ones with very slow reproductive rates. Suddenly it's changed the system and hundreds of species went extinct. Africa, which was used to the previous hominin species living there, did better. Uh, Australia, North America, South America got hit particularly hard because they'd never had anything like us. You know, they, it was a real shock to the system. And obviously that continues right to this day where we just continue to put more and more pressure on, on the natural world as, as we advance and advance our interests, often at the expense of other life forms. In terms of understanding how nature worked before people turned up, you can go back to what's known as the last interglacial or the Eemian uh, time period, about 125,000 years ago, roughly. Uh, and for Britain, for example, we had a very similar climate that we have to, to today, uh, but we had no Homo sapiens living here. Neanderthals have been here for a lot longer than that, uh, but seem to have had a less impact on, on nature. So if you think of megafauna today, I'm thinking elephants, I'm thinking lions, I'm thinking all these very charismatic large species that you need to go to Africa uh, or Asia maybe to, to find. Those species not that long ago were everywhere, everywhere apart from maybe Antarctica. They, the elephants occurred on every continent apart from Antarctica. We had lions living in, in Britain and, and that's trying to understand that system and how that worked before humans came and influenced it is, is interesting from a nature conservation perspective. So I heard about your work looking at the environment around here and one of the things that was discussed uh, was hippos in the Thames. 
Yeah, so I mean, it's just a great story, isn't it? The hippos used to live in the, in the Thames. We found remains of hippo bones and teeth and tusks under Trafalgar Square. We think of today as a hippo lives in a hot country like Africa, but actually this things are quite different to what we're led to believe if we just look at our own time period. If, we, if what we have now, if that's our only point of reference, then we kind of lose the richness of, of, of the diversity of, of what can happen and what is possible. So what happened to these hippos? Yeah, so uh, the hippos in particular, so that, that period of time, that 125,000 years ago, was what's known as an interglacial, it's a warm period, like today, so temperate. Uh, it changed roughly 110,000 years ago, started going into that ice age. And from a hippo's perspective, Britain's not a good place to be during an ice age, so they moved down to somewhere like southern Europe. Would there have been elephants on the downs? I mean, the downs are also a kind of a geological feature that might change over time. But in this region, yes, certainly we'd have elephants moving through this system, okay. living in the system, yeah. Amazing. A major area of Chris's work has been to better understand the implications of a practice known as rewilding. And early on in his career, he was engaged in postgraduate research at a reserve in the Scottish Highlands, studying how wild boar and wolves could be used to reinstate the Caledonian pine forest. So I was hoping you could perhaps give us some details about the work that you had done in Allerdale in the Scottish Highlands. What is rewilding? How does it work? Okay, rewilding is a uh, it's a big, lots of debate about what it really means, and it means different things to different people. But what Allerdale wants to achieve is to create a wilderness reserve or a wildland reserve. And the way it wants to do that is to introduce some of the species that we've lost from the past, so something like wolves, um, bear, for example, lynx as big predators, but also European elk, which is the same species as moose, wild boar. And it wants to bring these species back because of the ecological roles they play in the landscape. So at the moment, there's a very large population of red deer. Um, controlling the deer population, i.e. culling it, is hard work. Um, you know, it's a big job. As the natural predator of, of deer are wolves, you could think about reintroducing wolves in order to help bring that deer population down. And even if they didn't achieve that, it could still change the distribution of deer in the landscape, which could give trees an opportunity to grow in some places. Where you get trees growing, it makes an environment that's better for wild boar and beavers, which also have positive ecological impacts. So, for example, beavers create dams in rivers. That creates wetlands. Wetlands are good for a whole host of species, as well as providing ecosystem services like improving water quality and slowing the flow of water. So rewilding is this idea of can we recreate ecological systems um, that are you know, functioning more complex, more dynamic, better for biodiversity and hopefully better for people as well. Um, and that's what rewilding is all about from, from my perspective. I get the sense that it's a holistic approach of trying to see uh, the natural world as this integrated working mesh of lots of different organisms all at the same time, right? How predictable is it? Does it ever go horribly wrong, you know, that you reintroduce one species and then actually that has a completely different effect than you imagined or people uh, proposed that it would? Yeah, there's absolutely risk associated with reintroductions. I mean, most of the biggest problems are when you come up with introductions, are you move a species to an area that has never been before. You might do it for good reason. I said, we've got a pest species. We want to bring in a potential predator to control that pest species. But because ecological systems are really complex, if it's got no history in there, it might do something totally different and a lot of problems are created. I think there's less risk if you're bringing in a species that has a, a long ecological history because 
over evolutionary time, those other species in that system have, have adapted to that, that species' presence. And in so doing, if you put it back, it's been absent for 100 years or two. From an ecological perspective, that's not so much of a big deal. Interesting. So he's just been away. That, that organism has just been away for a short period of time, but they've already evolved to have some kind of pre-existing relationship. Yeah, and I think beavers are a really good example of that. So beavers chop down a lot of trees, but a lot of the trees that chops down are used to growing back up in response. So that you know, one almost one stem becomes many stems, and that's a very good relationship for both beaver and, and plant. You put a beaver into a landscape that hasn't had that, beaver chops down tree, tree stays chopped down. And that becomes a problem because beavers are wiping out all the, all the trees in, in that area. It's changed the ecological system. There's always risk and there's always uncertainty. And one of the things that's interesting me at the moment is the relationship between uncertainty and risk. If we want to go to a landscape and say, I'm going to do a big arable farm here. I'm going to plant a lot of crops. I can be sure that in a few years' time that that farm has probably managed to create that landscape we know what it's going to look like. Big fields, we're used to that. What we don't necessarily know from a risk point of view, what implications that might have for water quality and, and, and flood mitigation. From a natural system perspective, you can let nature take its course. And I can't tell you whether it's going to be closed forest or open grassland. But what I can say is it's probably going to be some mix in between the two. And that's going to have a bunch of positive outcomes because it's diverse. It's, it's not maximizing one thing at the expense of everything else. It keeps everything probably a little bit more imbalanced than maybe some of our land uses. So our ecological system might be uncertain. I don't know what it's going to look like exactly, but I can be fairly certain it's going to have a, a nice resilient system that, that's providing for people and nature to some degree. Chris is working with stakeholders on an interdisciplinary project exploring the role large herbivores can play in conservation, community agriculture, rewilding and delivering ecosystem services in the southeast of England. The levels of education, the levels of awareness, the the quality of the science, um, the ability to communicate with everybody what's going on uh, means that we can be more aware of our impacts on, on a whole global level. And if we're aware of it, we can start thinking about what decisions we can make to improve our relations with the natural world. Um, and this relates to kind of ideas called, often referred to as e- ecosystem services. So these are the benefits nature provides people and society. So food obviously we grow we eat it that's a big benefit Uh, but we don't often consider lots of other ones as well so uh, a landscape with a lot of trees in it is less likely to flood than one with no trees in it because that those trees help slow the flow of water Um, vegetation that helps filter our air and improve uh, air quality also water quality some evidence to suggest getting outside in nature is good for our health and well-being physically and mentally. Um, so there's lots of benefits nature provides society, which means you can start engaging um, people on an everyday basis, but also businesses, also governments on, well, how do we want to interact with this natural world? Not just because we think it's important for its own sake, but also because it's important for how we live. From what I understand, this is a bit contentious because it's about... Um, saying that you know the natural world isn't isn't priceless. We're putting a price on the, the the services that an aspect of an ecosystem provides. It's controversial, but I don't think it's a simple yes or no. You shouldn't put a value on nature or not. I can understand why people worried about it. I think George Monbiot, uh, the environmental columnist, particularly worried about these things, and I think he describes it in one of the lectures I I give. I talk about you know he, he says you know you. 
if you're putting a, a monetary value on nature, you're just pushing it into the system that's chewing it up. Other people, Georgina Mace, for example, um, who's an active player in this field and, uh, and makes the point that, well, if you don't put any value on it, if, it it just gets chewed up anyway, you know. So I I appreciate both points of view. Um, I, I, I think that sometimes it doesn't really make much sense to put a financial value on nature as a whole, but from a very practical perspective there are sometimes it just makes good sense and if you can talk the language the right language to people of what they they're used to and what they understand it it might just communicate the situation a bit better um and that's my perspective but there's risks to that and there's 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 opportunities as well much of chris's impact to date has been achieved through partnerships with various stakeholders including farmers, companies and non-governmental organizations such as Rewilding Britain. I'd like to see more wild nature in in the the most developed areas of the world, um, particularly the UK. I do work with an organization called Rewilding Britain who have um, help and advise where I can or and that organization starting to have some impact so they've just announced a uh, a new project called Summit to Sea, which is based in Wales, which is um, a project they're hoping to really achieve this goal of helping nature and, and people thrive better than it has done before. Um, the other area I'm hoping to have impact is, and this relates to the research I'm doing currently, is through monitoring. Um, the improvement of our ability to understand what nature is doing and how it's responding to, to actions people are taking. In 2015, Chris was awarded a NERC Knowledge Exchange Fellowship to facilitate the restoration of naturally functioning upland ecosystems in Britain. NERC stands for Natural Environment Research Council and is the UK's leading public funder of environmental science. As part of the fellowship, he developed processes to engage local communities, policymakers, businesses and other stakeholders to discuss how to restore the British uplands. Uh, I got a NERC Knowledge Exchange Fellowship a couple of years ago to try and engage stakeholders with the ecological restoration. The idea is to try and get scientists to interact with stakeholders and, and share knowledge, both knowledge flowing from those stakeholders to the academic to improve their ability to ask good questions and answer them, but also to share knowledge that the research community has, has gathered. It came just after the EU referendum result, uh, and that suddenly really lit a fire under the debate around what's going to happen in the future. So the Upland Alliance ran something on the future of the Uplands post-Brexit. Uh, and I heard people from the NFU describing that upland farmers are going to have to diversify or die. You know, the, the, the only way they're going to really maintain their their livelihoods is to, is to think outside the box and do some things different. Can you define upland and NFU? So the NFU is the National Farmers Union. Upland areas, as in hilly, mountainous, northern England, Wales, Scotland, Highlands. There was a lot of discussion, you know, around what, what's the future going to be, and and the role I took for that that um, Knowledge Exchange Fellowship was to go and meet with them on their sites and discuss what rewilding means to them, what barriers they see to implementation, and maybe what might help them uh, to implement it as a useful opportunity for diversity in, in rural upland areas. So that was a very interesting set of conversations. You know, I clearly I identify that rewilding means different things to different people, but I found out the, the seven different things they tend to associate with identified a bunch of different barriers that I was unaware of uh, from a policy perspective, things like tax breaks for 
agricultural property that if you move to a conservation thing, you don't get those same tax breaks. The big financial costs are just changing land use. And then I ran a workshop at the British Ecological Society in London where I invited stakeholders that included businesses, the National Farmers Union, to discuss these issues you know, in depth where I kind of introduced what I'd found to date. And we set up a variety of different workshops to say, you know, what are the key issues for them? And maybe what are their ideas for more research? Attending conferences, organising meetings, um, setting up workshops where you bring pe- people together to try and problem solve, I think is all part of it. We've got a paper coming out next week, which is a, what's called a, a practitioner's perspective. So I wrote a paper with other practitioners, the Countryside Land Association, people from the uh, National Trust. So we're trying to get that diversity of perspectives together and publish a paper that says, this is the breadth of idea of what rewilding means. These are the barriers. And if you want to realise that opportunity, these might be some ideas that either government or landowners can take in order to overcome those issues. So what I hope is that paper might get some attention, people might get excited by the idea, might change the way they do things on on the land that they manage, and hopefully it leads to positive outcomes for people in nature. With the stakeholders that you're describing, how important is that dialogue for achieving impact? I, I think without any dialogue with those stakeholders, it's impossible to have impact. There's always going to be a stakeholder somewhere. You might be able to discuss maybe policy with policymakers. From my perspective, it needs to be broader than that. You need to be talking to the people who's going to get affected by that policy and the policymakers and the practitioners and people with all sorts of different perspectives. My research is creating numbers, trying to understand relations, trying to understand ecology. But that's only a real small part of the story, really. It's how that, that interacts with people on the ground and the decisions they're making, policymakers, businesses, you know, the market. There's, it's a very complex system. And without having that engagement across campus with other disciplines, so they, to fill in the knowledge gaps that I have, but also then engaging with the people on the ground that have all that knowledge about, you know, what actually works on a daily basis. You know, it's all very well. I come up with a new idea, but if it's completely impossible to put into practice on the ground, then, you know, what's that going to do for anyone? So it, it requires a huge amount of dialogue, I think. If academia has that role, particularly within the conservation sector, to try and bring research together and then combine it with trying to identify actions that we can actually take on, on the ground, you definitely need your ecologist, conservationist, your social scientist, your economist, risk assessment people. There's a real diverse range of expertise you need to try and bring together. The farmers that Chris met said that they found the constantly changing environmental policies and targets difficult to plan for, and this is something that he has fed back to government. During the NERC Fellowship, Chris was interviewed for a Parliamentary Office of Science and Technology, or Postnote, on rewilding and ecosystem services. The Postnote summarised public policy issues for parliamentarians to prepare them on key issues before they reach the top of the political agenda. He has also provided evidence on the risks and opportunities of rewilding after Brexit to the Environmental Audit Committee, which reviews the policies and programmes of government departments and non-departmental public bodies to see how they contribute to environmental protection and to audit their performance against targets. Chris does think that the government's thinking on rewilding has started to shift. As well as this, Chris's consultancy group, Wild Business, also brings him into contact with a range of organisations. I set up a business to try and work with companies to to change the way they do things, to work with nature better. Um, I feel like we've made some good steps in that in that area. We've worked with uh, NGOs such as Rewilding Britain um, to try and influence the way they're thinking about 
uh, rewilding and how they might be able to take positive change in that area, kind of develop the right kind of projects. Uh, we did some work for them called the Rewilding Knowledge Hub, which people tell me they've used in order to support grant applications. Uh, we've also worked with businesses um, to try and put together uh, strategies for them to work with nature in their landscapes better. So we work with companies interested in water, giving advice about maybe steps they could take by working with their local farmers to reduce the risk of flooding and improve water quality. It, it, it's those kind of areas. Uh, what I'm hoping in the future, and there is a lot more attention on this now, especially around Brexit and talking about a change from the common agricultural policy to this idea of public money for public goods and services. Um, so this could be a really major change in the way land use policy influences the direction of what people do on, a, on the ground on a daily basis. So I've been talking to landowners to try and understand the issue in more detail and conservationists and, and scientists. You're trying to provide that information for better decision making, I think. Stakeholder workshops also provide researchers with new research ideas and approaches. For example, new research areas for the Sussex Sustainability Research Programme on the role of large herbivores came out of a stakeholder workshop, as did the importance of communicating the findings in new and innovative ways. One of the things I found particularly useful and interesting from that process was at the first stakeholder workshop, they came out with some pretty clear suggestions about what they thought was important for moving forward. We weren't going to prioritise, but one was soil. Everyone kind of agreed more focus on soil is, is important, so we were hopefully going to be able to add something to our research. Um, the other thing they said, which I think was important when it comes to thinking about impact, is data is good, data is needed, data you need that evidence, that substantive evidence behind it. But unless you combine that into a well-told story so that people can really engage it and understand it, it just doesn't get communicated. Chris is more than aware that better decisions around natural resources and land use are not always a result of academic publication. And that to have real impact in the area of conservation, there will need to be a change in the stories that we have about what the natural world is or could be. I feel that the risk of leaving academics to try and communicate everything is we're not necessarily the best storytellers. In fact, by writing papers, they seem to encourage us not to tell brilliant stories sometimes because we have a very fixed structure, which is a personal frustration of mine. But working with storytellers and working with a, uh, a guy that I work with on a regular basis called Daniel Locke, who's a graphic novelist and science communicator who I met a few years ago through Rewilding Sussex, uh, who happens to be just a fantastic guy to work with. He gives me a means of communicating my data into a story that that might work. So some of the things we were talking about earlier, like hippos in the Thames, he's helped me turn my bar graphs into landscapes and what they might have looked like. So I can, he's he's drawn those hippos in the Thames and, and we've able then to communicate that to, in this case, school children to say, you know, this is what it looked like during the Ice Age. And that's based on data, but it's told as a story, which is far more powerful. Chris and Brighton artist David Locke teamed up to inspire youngsters and landowners to rethink how the Sussex countryside would have looked 125,000 years ago in a new graphic short story and a card game inspired by the childhood favourite Top Trumps, featuring some of the awe-inspiring beasts which previously roamed Sussex, including the spotted hyena, hippopotamus and Eurasian lynx. The project, a collaboration between the University of Sussex, Daniel Locke, Sussex Wildlife Trust and Rewilding Sussex, included workshops for 15 to 25-year-olds. This work was displayed at the Anka Gallery in Brighton in July 2018. So you've created a graphic novel? 
Yeah, we had a graphic short story which basically told the story of the species there, what humans were doing, how the landscape changes, hoping to put together a 200-page story about rewilding with a particular focus on the connection between nature, wild nature and human health and well-being. Um, so we, that's our next project, essentially. As much as Chris has a far-reaching understanding of the past, he is also very much focused on the future. And by starting a community group called Rewilding Sussex, he is committed to inspiring future generations of urban-dwelling minds to reimagine their relationship with nature. Got a group of students who want to take on the project. How do we get 15, 25-year-olds involved with nature? And they pitched for that project and they highlighted that Brighton is one of the centres of the world for celebrity internet superstars on YouTube, etc. And, and that was way beyond my knowledge and my familiarity. And it is, is a brilliant example of young people coming out and, and hopefully pushing the pushing the envelope on, on what's possible. And, and they combine their personal experiences, like going to places like the Nepa State, which is right on our doorstep, which is wilder land than, than anywhere else around here, uh, and then maybe match that up with a good communication message that might reach a big audience because they they may know how to access that more than previous generations have. So I think there's hope. We've, we've got to get excited about it and we've got to get enthusiastic about it. And I hope to bring some of that enthusiasm.